Q&A on updates for MDS, NHSN, and immunizations. A conversation with the healthcare experts at Quality Insights. Good afternoon and welcome to our series of webinars focused on bringing you information about COVID-19 related topics. The information in these weekly webinars is geared toward long-term care and skilled nursing facilities, but we encourage everyone who's interested to attend. My name is Kathy Caudill. I'm a communication specialist with Quality Insights. Today, we'll be having a Q&A on the MDS, the National Healthcare Safety Network updates, and on immunizations. And now I'd like to introduce today's panelists. We have several of our quality improvement specialists here today, Deborah Wright, Penny Imes, and Shirley Sullivan. And we're also joined by our infection preventionist, Jennifer Brown, and Quality Insights Medical Director, Dr. Jean Storm. The first question we have that was uh, pre-submitted, it says, we are coming into the time of year that we review our emergency preparedness plan with the increased focus on emergency planning. Do you have any tips that might make this an easier task to accomplish? Thanks, Kathy. I'm going to take that question. And, and it's, it is a good question. It's something that we all really need to be thinking about, especially with winter coming. Um, and it is a really big job when you're thinking about reviewing your entire emergency preparedness plan. So sometimes a, a job with of this size, it's easier to break it down into bite-sized pieces and sort of review it over a few months rather than trying to accomplish the entire review over just a few days, because we all know everybody's a little bit busy <laughs> every day in the nursing home. So really taking those bite-sized chunks allows you to focus on, on smaller areas and more in-depth manner to truly ensure that your plan's meeting your expectations. And you really want to make sure that you're including um, all of your interdisciplinary team. You're getting input from your staff when you're thinking about how are we planning for emergencies. Now, we do have a resource available that can help make sure that you don't miss anything on your, your review. We did put together sort of an emergency preparedness outline, and there's a nice checklist in there that kind of walks you through each area that you really should be reviewing annually. And then it's also important to remember, as your resident population changes, your EP, your emergency preparedness plan might need to be updated to reflect the needs of high-risk residents or special needs populations. In fact, I think we heard from somebody about something like that, Kathy. Uh, yes, we have another question. It says, based on the question related to emergency preparedness planning, can you provide an example of high-risk residents that would need to be included in the EPP? And, and really, again, we always are talking, I think, about your risk assessment. So it's those high-risk residents in special populations are best identified through a review of your individual facility risk assessment, because everybody is going to be different. And I know we, we typically think about those things like the respiratory units with vents, you know, housing residents with high oxygen needs. But sometimes we need to take into consideration some of the more common and therefore easier to overlook populations within our nursing homes. So those residents that are on the regular units, but maybe less easy to identify, who would be at greater risk for an adverse event during an emergency because they do have specialized needs. So you really have to think about, you know, do you have a plan in place to ensure, say, residents with a modified diet 
that the consistencies are identified and appropriate fluids would be available to them, say, during an evacuation? Or what would your plan look like for evacuating a unit to the other side of a firewall to and, and while still ensuring that residents with cognitive impairments remain safe? Because we know not everybody has a lockdown unit for dementia residents. Sometimes we have residents with various cognitive impairments throughout our general population. And, um, you know, dr emergency drills, the alarms going off, that type of thing can really um, be a trigger for some of those residents. So you really have to think through your resident population and what you need to prepare for. So that facility assessment, working in conjunction with your emergency preparedness plans, would help make sure that you've identified known risk and that you have plans in place to mitigate those risks. So it all goes beyond a little bit more than, well, let's plan for a power outage if there is a snowstorm, as into how do we make sure that all of our residents are safe when we're looking at emergency planning. And thank you. All right, thank you, Penny. The next question says, um, COVID-19 cases seem to be on the rise again. Is that the case? Is that what you guys are seeing? I can take this, Kathy. Um, so yes, sadly, we have been seeing COVID cases have been rising since August. Um, and we are seeing this continual rise in our weekly reports on facility outbreaks. And it seems to be uh, following trends from past years where cases start rising at the end of the summer, peaking in October, dropping off and then spiking again in January. So this is really a good reminder to continue to be diligent with your infection control protocols and policies, paying special attention to areas of potential weakness and transmission, making sure staff are following precautions, um, that they're donning and doffing PPE properly and doing good hand hygiene. And along with um, continually educating staff and residents, um, not only being up to date on their vaccines, but on proper um, uh, infection control protocols. We also want to just give a reminder to make sure you're doing hand hygiene and PPE audits, um, doing them at least two times a week and giving good direct feedback to your staff. Um, and hopefully all this will help you know, slow the spread um, of not just COVID, but all the respiratory viruses that we're seeing this season. Hey, thank you, Shirley. You're welcome. And uh, sort of a follow-up question to that. It says, uh, what PPE should be used while transporting a resident with suspected or confirmed COVID-19 infection? Um, in general, um, transporting a resident with suspected or confirmed COVID-19 infection outside of their room should be limited to medically essential purposes. Uh, if they are being transported outside the room for medically essential services or transferred to a higher level of care, make sure that the receiving facility is notified before the resident is transported. Uh, the CDC recommends that the resident wear well-fitting source control during transport if they can tolerate it um, to contain any respiratory secretions and any and their body should be covered with a clean sheet. Healthcare professionals providing transport should wear all recommended PPE such as gowns, gloves, um, a particulate respirator with N95 filters or higher, um, eye protection. Um, and this is recommended because 
these interactions typically involve close and often face-to-face contact with the resident in a very enclosed space, such as their room. So once the resident has been transported uh, to a wheelchair or a gurney if, um, before exiting their room, transporters should remove their gown and gloves and perform hand hygiene. Um, any staff members transporting the residents should continue to wear their respirator and use eye protection during the transport. And after they arrive, uh, the receiving personnel and staff member transporting the residents should perform hand hygiene and wear all recommended PPE when assisting the resident transfer. Thank you. Our next question, it says, uh, will widespread mask mandates return with the rise of COVID-19 cases? As Shirley has mentioned, the COVID-19 cases are beginning to rise. Um, while some businesses and healthcare facilities have already increased their mask usage, there's no bit, there's not been any official updates to the guidance regarding widespread mask usage in nursing homes or other healthcare settings. Um, facilities should continue to consider the overall health of their residents and the level of community transmission of COVID-19 and other respiratory viruses when making decisions about implementing that broad-based masking. And COVID-19 transmission in the community, you know, like I said, is increasing. As it increases, so does the likelihood of encountering asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic residents, staff, visitors. So facilities with a large population of immunocompromised residents or increased community transmission should consider implementing universal PPE. Um, yeah. Jennifer, we just got a question in the chat that says, um, I'm seeing very little interest in the new COVID vaccine pushback with encouragement. What do other facilities see? Yeah, I mean, we we were we we were talking about it too. With we're already, you know, some places don't even have the new vaccine yet, and and they are starting to hear some of the stories that are coming out and and some pushback. But I think overall, what we're seeing is that there again, even with this variant, there are more risk, especially to our elderly population getting the COVID infection, and even though it's been mild, if they are a certain age, if they have comorbidities, they, they're still at risk for so many um, problems. And I know Jean had talked about this a little bit um, with what they're seeing from a medical perspective. And Jean, if you want to jump in there. Sure. I, I think that we, we really have to remind our residents and families that significant risk of hospitalization with COVID, it still exists, um, that our residents are, you know, are at risk to be hospitalized if they get COVID. I think that we've, we've kind of been, um, I, I don't want to say we, we've kind of put down our walls, you know, we used to be very nervous about COVID and, and we're not so anymore, but our residents are at significant risk of being hospitalized still. Um, if they get COVID. So I, I would remind them of that. Also, unvaccinated individuals have significant risk of developing long COVID and having significant complications one year after the COVID infection. So 
I mean, the the there's been data that's demonstrated that individuals in you know, over 65, significantly over 80, if they're unvaccinated and then they get the COVID infection, they have an increased risk of mortality one year following that COVID infection. So I, I think you really need to remind, um, you know, individuals of that. And I, I can certainly put um, together an education on the COVID vaccine, you know, for, in, you know, in the coming weeks. Yeah, and we are, we're in, and Arlene, I say, you know, you're saying the same thing. And even those who were uh, updated prior to this, I think, again, that reminder and, and what Jean alluded to, I, I think we have become sort of complacent. We were dealing with a variant that fortunately did have some milder symptoms and people were getting over it eat more easily. But again, if you get COVID, the, the chances of hospitalizations, the chances of the illness continuing and having adverse effects over a period of time, we are updating all of our tools and resources also that we'll be putting out there for you that hopefully you can use to do some education with residents' families. But I think it's just really important to, to remind them too, like if you had a booster a while ago, it's just, it's kind of like you you should be getting your updated vaccine, just like you have to get updated vaccine with a lot of other viruses that can change and, and mutate. So you really want to be prepared for that, that other variant that can easily come along. So I just think having those, those conversations, um, and then we'll, we'll work on providing you with education and resources that you can share with your family and residents, and hopefully that will help. Thanks for the feedback. We always appreciate feedback from our nursing home staff who attend. Thank you. Next of our pre-submitted questions, can you tell us the best way to prevent infection in residents who have femoral dialysis catheters? We have had many residents with these catheters be sent out to the hospital and diagnosed with sepsis. Sure, I can um, talk about this one. So, you know, that's a, a big issue with residents who do have dialysis catheters, period. Um, but that femoral dialysis catheters are a significant risk for our residents to develop sepsis. So enhanced barrier precautions or EBP are indicated when a resident does have any type of indwelling medical device, such as a dialysis catheter when contact precautions do not otherwise apply and enhanced barrier precautions expand the use of PPE and they utilize gown and gloves during high contact resident care activities. And these high contact resident care activities are going to provide an opportunity for transfer of MDROs to you know, this, your staff clothing typically. And so examples of high contact resident care activities would include dressing, bathing, showering, transferring, any type of changing of linen, providing hygiene, wound care, or device care. So enhanced barrier precautions should be used during these activities. So the next question is also for Eugene. It says, can you tell us what the new requirement for continuing medical education for Pennsylvania uh, medical directors. Have any other regulations changed regarding medical directors? So this is new for Pennsylvania, and I have not, I've, I've been a medical director in Pennsylvania and both in West Virginia as well, and I've not seen this regulation before. So it's something um, all facilities in Pennsylvania should be aware of. 
And so the, the regulation states that in a, in a, the medical director of a, of a facility obviously should be licensed in the state of Pennsylvania and shall complete at least four hours annually of continuing medical education pertinent to the field of medical direction or post-acute and long-term care medicine. So you really need to remind your medical director that they need to have four hours of CME that is pertinent to medical direction of a long-term care facility or in the area of long-term care medicine. So I would, you know, your medical director might push back and say, hey, I'm, you know, what I'm going to do my um, medical CME in, um, you know, COVID management, um, you know, just in general. But I would make sure that the continuing medical education is really pertinent to that long-term care piece because we don't know what surveyors are going to say is acceptable. And I would make sure that you ask your medical director for that certificate, you know, registration attendance confirmation form. If they do do that medical education, that they have documentation that you ask to for your medical director to give to you and then, you know, make sure you um, you store it somewhere in your facility so that when you have surveyors come in and they ask about the four hours of continuing medical education, that you make sure that um, uh, you have that available to give to the surveyors. So that is the, the big change um, for the regulations is that your medical director is required to have that four hours of continuing medical education pertinent to medical direction um, or post-acute long-term care medicine. Thank you, Jean. Uh, the next two questions we have are about the optional state assessment or OSA. The first question is, if you are doing a standalone EOPPS, is an OSA required? So the simple answer to that is no. And for those that don't know what all the abbreviations are, um, if you're doing a, a standalone end of PPS, um, do you also have to do an OSA or other state assessment? Um, is that required? And it is not required. Um, remember that your, your standalone end of PPS will still be completed, submitted through the federal um, database, and it we do not need to do an OSA with that one. Great. Thank you, Deb. Next question says, are OSAs required with OBRAs? except trackers, entities, and, or sorry, entries and discharges? So no, the, um, the OSAs are not required with OBRA trackers, entries, and discharges. And I really struggled with this one. This, this has been a question that I have received probably at least 10 times since Friday um, with people trying to understand why we don't need to do an OSA with the discharge, like what's going to happen when our CMI comes and are we going to have to do all these modifications? And honestly, I kept reading it. And the more I was talking to all of you, I started having the same questions. So I reached out um, to an MDS consultant that this is all they do. And she kept sending me the same answer back um, in emails and text. And I, I still didn't get it. And it wasn't until she said it out loud 
that I understood it. It basically, we have to remember, we're still doing our entries and our discharges and submitting them to CMS. That's what's going to affect our CMI report. The OSAs are only establishing our MA reimbursement. So as long as we are doing the entries and the discharges and we're submitting those, they're going to go on the right side of our CMI report. Are they going on the MA side or the non-MA side? The OSA is only establishing reimbursement. So if we are just doing a tracker, we do not need to do um, an OSA or that other state assessment. All right. Thank you, Deb. So that's all the questions we've received so far. And Kathy, while we're waiting for questions, I did want to just remind everybody, I think most people know now, you know, until you have the new vaccine, new booster, or if you've had a booster within the previous two months, you are no longer considered up to date. But NHSN, if you didn't get to listen to the live webinar that they had about two weeks ago, they're having a recording tomorrow. Um, and they're going they're going through what the surveillance um, in NHSN, what you need to document. So uh, again, those NHSN webinars for anyone who does that documentation, really important for you to um, listen into those webinars when you get a chance. And in our Friday newsletter, we always list out webinars that are coming up. And I see there was a question, how long after COVID positive can one get the new vaccine? And Jennifer, I don't know if, or Jean, if you've read anything on that, I was seeing, what I was seeing is there's like not a specific wait time, but if. I I didn't see a definitive uh, wait time. CDC is, is um, didn't recommend a definitive time frame, but I believe they said that you could wait three months following the a positive um, COVID test. Yes. And I know and from the previous one, Jen, because we had, you had talked <laughs> about this back when we were <laughs> doing the, went from the monovalent to the bivalent. I know, although they said three months, there were some people who volunteered at the time. And I don't know if any of you on the call um, in your nursing homes, some of you gave them sooner, like within 30 to 60 days. And there were, from what I understand, there were no adverse effects from that. Yeah, it is, it is, you know, fine to give after they're out of their isolation period, once they're recovered from their COVID-19 infection. Uh, but some people may choose to wait um, that time period. So no other questions? Answer. And how long after COVID should we administer the flu? Flu vaccine? I think they mean shot, flu shot, yeah. Shot, I think, Yeah. Jen, I'm giving that to you. <laughs> Any yeah. anytime someone has an active infection, we should, you know, wait until they're recovered and well. Um, but you know, once they're recovered, they're okay to get their flu shot. Uh, yeah, I would totally agree. Once they're feeling better, then they're. I mean, they they recommend you can get the COVID and flu shot in the same day. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. yeah, that I think that would be perfectly fine once they're recovered from flu. That's it for questions. I'd like to thank all of our panelists for joining us here today. And I'd like to thank all of you for joining us. And I hope that we can see you again next week. Thank you. You can check out our other interviews at qualityinsights.org slash QIN slash multimedia.